Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 153 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And it's National Poetry Month. We thought we would kick off with a poem or two. In the last episode, we talked about how we're excited to go visit the Morgan Library in Manhattan soon. They have a Gwendolyn Brooks exhibit that we're excited about. So I've pulled my Gwendolyn Brooks off the shelf. These two books, I happen to open them. And the poem that I open it to, it's called The Crazy Woman. And this is from Selected Poems of Gwendolyn Brooks. I shall not sing a May song. A May song should be gay. I'll wait until November and sing a song of gray. I'll wait until November. That is the time for me. I'll go out in the frosty dark and sing most terribly. And all the little people will stare at me and say, that is the crazy woman who would not sing in May. Hmm. So that was the first poem that just opened. And then the other book that I took off my shelf is The Essential Gwendolyn Brooks, edited by Elizabeth Alexander. And the poem that I just happened to open up to in this book is also a poem about singing. And I thought that was really kind of a great coincidence. So here we go. This is called Steam Song, Hostilica Hears Al Green. That song, it sings the sweetness like a good song can and make a woman want to run out and find her man. Ain't got no pretty mansion, ain't got no ruby ring. My man is my only necessary thing. That song boil up my blood like a good song can. It makes this woman want to run out and find her man. Mm. So I thought those two poems went well together. Yeah. Very different atmosphere and subject matter, but about songs. Yeah, thematic. Yeah. Thank you for sharing those. I don't know much about her poetry. I don't know much about her. I'm really looking forward to going to this exhibit. Yeah, me yeah. too. Can't wait. Yeah. So we have some Patreons to thank. We sure do. We did a new quarter Patreon drive, and we have six new Patreon supporters, and we are here to thank you all from the bottom of our hearts. Truly, we really appreciate your support. It really helps keep the podcast going. So quick shout outs to Kim, Fiona, Diane, Maureen, Janet, and Pam. And Pam is a returning Patreon. So reminder to people too, you can come and go as you need to. We appreciate you. Absolutely, we do. So we also want to remind people of our upcoming read along. Yeah, our second quarter read along is going to be Two Old Women, an Alaska Legend of Betrayal Courage and Survival by Velma Wallace. Yes, and reminder to people that the Zoom discussion will be on Sunday, May 15th, 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Shoot us an email at bookcougars at gmail.com if you want to hold a spot. Yep, and then we'll be recording episode 156, where we'll talk about the book together on May 18th. So if you would like to send us any questions or themes or anything you'd like us to talk about, we'd be happy to incorporate that into our conversation. And also start posting those pictures of you and your book on social media. We've seen a couple. It makes us happy. It really does. And it's neat to see the different editions. One of the things that we noticed quite by accident, at first, I think we thought it was a typo, the subtitle, an Alaska legend or an Alaskan legend. We've seen it both ways. And at first I thought one was UK and one was US maybe, but that is not the case at all. Mm -hmm. It changed from the different editions. Yeah, so. it's funny. I don't know how and why they mm -hmm. decided to do that. Yeah, maybe yeah. we can track it down. Yeah. And then there's also a Goodreads thread. So feel free to start discussing there as well. Yeah, it was really fun to see a lot of people saying that it was a book that they've wanted to read for a while. They've had it on their shelves even, so they're happy to get to it. And then quite a few people have already read it and recently yeah. as well. So that's kind of interesting as well, too. Maybe the book is having a bit of a resurgence because it was first published in the 90s. Yeah, it's been around for a bit. Yeah. <laughs> so, Chris, what are you currently reading? Well, I'm currently reading the new one coming from Jennifer McMahon, who writes creepy fiction. She lives up in Vermont. So a lot of people consider her kind of like an heir to Shirley Jackson her new book coming out in late April is The Children on the Hill. And it's creepy, you know, it's Jennifer McMahon. 
This is a dual timeline type book from the 1970s to 2019 about two kids who are living with their grandmother, who is this really well-known mental health person. And they take in this girl in the 70s and then fast forward to current day, 2019, the daughter is now this famous podcaster who tracks down monsters, real monsters, mythological monsters. So there's a theme of monsters in here. Like we're talking Dracula and Frankenstein monsters and then also real human monsters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you want to be creeped out, pick up a Jennifer McMahon book. Ooh, she's good. I yeah. like her writing. <laughs> I'm listening to Hungry Heart, Adventures in Life, Love, and Writing by Jennifer Weiner. She's one of those novelists that's really well known for her summer beach reads. And this book is a book of essays that she wrote and put together. They've been written across time, but this book came out in 2016. And I just happened upon it. It's her only work of nonfiction, and I was kind of curious. She covers all sorts of territory here from being a young kid. She grew up in West Simsbury, Connecticut. So it was actually funny because she was telling the story of driving over Avon Mountain. And I was literally doing that as I listened to that story. And I kind of, (laughs) it was kind of an out of body experience, but she didn't feel like she fit in growing up. She tells stories of that. And then also trying to get into Princeton, studying under some very famous writers like John McPhee and Toni Morrison and Joyce Carol Oates and becoming a journalist, and then eventually on to writing, being a mother, a sister, a daughter. She is not afraid to talk about difficult things. It's very raw and real, and she narrates. So I'm enjoying it quite a bit. Nice. Well, the other book I'm reading is Miss Grief and Other Stories by Constance Fenimore Wilson. This is a book of short stories that were collected and edited by Anne Boyd Rue, who has been our guest on past episodes during our Summer of Little Women. So there's seven stories in this collection. Constance Fenimore Wilson was a 19th century writer. Her dates are 1840 to 1894. Oh my God, these stories are magnificent. I've read four of the seven, and this book is on its way to becoming one of my top tens of all time. All time? I thought you were going to say the year. No, these stories are fantastic. They're 19th century But her style is so crisp and clear. The characters are fantastic. The language, as she describes the landscapes a lot, they're set in different places. The Midwest, the South, the stories coming up are in Europe. Just beautiful, really evocative of place and time. But the language is just so clear. There's none of the 19th century long-winded sentence that I think some people associate with the 19th century Just beautiful writing. I wanted to just read you this paragraph because it involves food. And I know how much my fellow cougar loves food, as I do too. So this is from a story called St. Clair Flats. And it's about these two guys who are out in the Great Lakes in this marshy area before the canals came through. So it's very wild. And they end up staying with this couple. The guy's a religious zealot and the wife is taking care of him and everything while he has his visions, and they have dinner together. So here we go. Years have gone by. The world and all its delicacies have been enrolled before me, but the memory of the meals I ate in that little kitchen in the flats haunts me still. That night it was only fish, potatoes, biscuits, butter, stewed fruit, and coffee. But the fish was fresh and done to the turn of a perfect broil, not burnt. The potatoes were fried to a rare crisp, yet tender perfection, not chippy brittleness. The biscuits were light, flaked, creamily, and brown on the bottom. The butter freshly churned, without salt. The fruit, great pears with their cores extracted, standing whole on their dish, ready to melt, but not melted. The coffee clear and strong, with yellow cream, and the old-fashioned, unadulterated sugar loaf. We ate. That does not express it. We devoured. Mm. I thought you. I'm going to scurry home and look up (laughs) Sugarloaf. Oh my gosh, of course I Googled Sugarloaf. Oh, you did? Yeah. And um, it is a a loaf that almost looks like a big bullet, for lack of a better comparison. It was before sugar was sold granulated. This is what I love about reading about food in books. Thank you, Chris. Right? And historical stuff. 
No, oh. I'm hungry. Yeah. I'm always hungry, but <laughs> <laughs> so glad to have rediscovered her through Anne Boyd Rue. Yeah. And I had this book. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that. I have the Library of America edition of her work. I've had that for a while, anticipating reading it, but I just recently picked up this smaller collection of the seven stories. I'm so happy to finally be getting into her. So again, that's Miss Grief and Other Stories by Constance Fenimore Wilson. She is a great niece of James Fenimore Cooper. So, Emily, what have you just read? I just read The Summer Place by Jennifer Weiner. (laughs) (laughs) And it was, I have to completely confess, when I started to look at her Instagram feed, I just became slightly obsessed with her. And that's when I discovered that book of essays. So I thought, oh, I want to get to know her better. But it's the first time I've listened to an audiobook of an author narrating their personal essays whilst reading a work of fiction of theirs. It got a little confusing in my head. What's her real life? What's this fiction piece? (laughs) I did mostly figure it out. This book comes out on May 10th. The New York Times hails her as the undisputed boss of the beach read. And I would say, you know, she has a book that comes out every May it's really true. They're fun books to read, but they also have like heft to them. She deals with difficult subject matters. This book in particular is told from multiple points of view during the time of COVID. So it's very of the moment. I wasn't sure how I would feel about that, but she uses humor to talk about how people are driving each other crazy a little bit, living in the house by themselves, or not by themselves, altogether, wishing they were living by themselves. (laughs) Sarah is the main protagonist, and she is the stepmother to Ruby, who comes home during the pandemic from college with her boyfriend in tow. So they are added to the household. They also have two children, younger boys in this family. So it's very family heavy with a lot going on. Her husband's driving her crazy because he's working at home too. And he's clopping around in his flip flops that are for his plantar fasciitis, which I've learned from stalking her that that's a true thing. Her husband does do that in real life, but he made it into her fiction. (laughs) And then towards the end of the school year, the daughter announces that she's getting married. It's told from all these different points of view. So the mother, Veronica, was a revered author who published a work of fiction when she was younger and a new mother starting out. She made a ton of money that kind of set the family up, but then never published books again. So that's a little mystery. There's people coming to terms with their sexuality, how to be a working parent. She covers a lot of territory. And then there's, of course, the beloved Cape Cod that appears in most of, if not all of her books. I haven't read all of them. The other thing that she's very well known for is having women characters who are fat, full-figured, and as Jennifer likes to point out, as are more than half of the women in America, at least. So I appreciate that about her writing, and there's always food as well. Again, this one's called The Summer Place. It's out on May 10th. Her book that summer just came out in paperback, so if you can't wait to start your beach reading, you can get to that one instead. Nice. I'm continuing on with picture book reading, and I read two this last time. One that I read was recommended to me by Sue, and that was Stella Luna by Janelle Cannon. Stella Luna's been out for a while, and I know I've seen it around, and I've heard people talking about it. It's about this little bat who gets separated from its mother and is raised by birds. So this little bat takes on bird characteristics and stuff. That becomes a bit of a challenge when bats come back into the little bat's life. Really charming story. I enjoyed it so much. So Sue, thank you so much for that recommendation. Then the other book that I read also kind of involves not bats, but vampires. It's called Vamp Penguin. This is written and illustrated by Lucy Ruth Cummins, and it's a newer book. This one came out in 2021, and it's about the Dracula family going to the zoo. So Mr. and Mrs. Dracula have two kids. One of them is in a stroller. It's that size kid. I'm going to show Emily a couple pictures here. So the youngest little Dracula family member, they all look a bit like 
Bella Lugosi's version of Dracula, right? <laughs> it has a little cape on and a little dark hair with the widow's peak vibe. But he has a little, we call him schnuller. What do you call them? Like a, a pacifier. Oh, I didn't yeah. know it. You were breaking out some German. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't know what you were talking about there. Yeah. So the little baby has a pacifier that's orange. So he looks very similar to the penguin that they visit at the zoo. Right? I never thought about vampires and penguins kind of having a similar vibe, but they do. And the vampire baby and the penguin change places. And what's really funny is, of course, the family doesn't know. They don't see it (laughs) because they look so much alike. So you have the little baby penguin being pushed in the stroller by Mr. Dracula as they're going around the zoo. In the end, of course, everything turns out to be okay. It was a fun book. I saw it on display at our local library, and I thought, okay, a picture book that deals with vampires, apparently, somehow, I have to get. Yes, right up your alley, for yeah. sure. So that was a fun read, and uh, a newer one out there. Again, Van Penguin by Lucy Ruth Cummins. Very sweet. I finished a book called Fiona and Jane by Jean Chen Ho. This is my book club read. And this is really short stories. It's like, what do they call those? Like the Olive Kittredge stories. They're linked. Yeah, linked. Thank you. That's the term I'm looking for. It's about two young Asian women and it goes through their time growing up years in high school all the way through becoming married and mothers. Well, mother for one of them, I should say. I didn't love it. I wasn't 100% drawn to it. But then I kept wanting to see what would happen. You do kind of get that feeling. And I realized part of what was troubling me was I have such a hard time reading about when teenagers are making bad choices and you're just like sitting on the sidelines going, don't do it. (laughs) So there were some stories like that. And I think once I got past some of those, her writing is great. It wasn't that I wasn't enjoying the writing. It was just a little painful, I think, to be back. And going through someone else's angst along with them. Mm. It is fiction, but she talks about culture, being in America, and the cultural divide, sexuality, family dynamics, and friendship and all of its discomforts. I'm very anxious to talk to my book club about it and see what they thought about this author and the writing. And I'm also anxious to see what else she writes moving forward. Mm-hmm. If she does something that's not short story is but more straight fiction. Yeah, you guys don't often read short story collections, do you? No, it can be tricky to read them. I think the very first time we met, which was years ago now, we did read a short story collection. I think it was Alice Monroe, Mm because none of us had read her. She's the one up in Canada, is Mm -hmm. that right? Yeah. And we were able to have a conversation about it. It can be tricky because you almost feel like you read something that was disconnected. So how do you talk about them individually? This one, I would say, is a little different. It is more like Olive Kittredge, where you feel like it's the same characters that are through the whole book. Whereas true unlinked short story collections, it's like, well, which one do you want to talk about? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So again, this one was called Fiona and Jane by Jean Chen Ho. Well, I finished The Murder of Mr. Wickham by Claudia Gray, which is what's the currently reading last episode. This book is coming out May 3rd from Vintage. Claudia Gray is a pseudonym for Amy Vincent, who's a writer who's done a lot of younger adult books. This is an adult level book. It is set in the world of Jane Austen's characters. They come together at this house party that is being thrown, and Mr. Wickham dies. He doesn't just die. He's murdered, as the title says. You know, like you said, you didn't really love the book that you just read. I didn't totally love this, but I really liked it a lot. It kept me interested in wanting to find out who did it and why. You kind of know why in some ways, because Wickham shows up to collect money that's owed him in part, because he created this financial scheme and a lot of people bought into it. And now they owe vast amounts of money, some of them, which is pretty much going to bankrupt them. What I enjoyed the most is that it's spending time with Jane Austen's beloved characters for the most part. So like, you know, Marianne from Sense and Sensibility, she's there with her newish husband, Colonel Brandon, they're visiting. Elizabeth Bennett, now Mrs. Darcy, is there with her husband, Mr. Darcy, and their son. So they have a teenage son. And 
he gets connected with a young woman who's there visiting without her family. And the two of them hit it off as they try to solve this mystery. It's Regency time period. So young women and young men should not be alone together. So there's that kind of riskiness happening. I am a lightweight Jane Austen fan. I've read the novels and stuff. I'm not hardcore. So I'm looking forward to seeing like how hardcore Jane Austen fans will embrace this novel because I thought it was a lot of fun. I plan on reading the future ones because they do say at the very beginning that this is going to be part of an ongoing series. So she's just going to keep killing off different characters? Who knows? You know, I don't know. I mean, Wickham is a great one to kill if you're going to kill somebody in Jane Austen's world. No one is crying over him, I don't think. (laughs) I don't know who else would be a good candidate It might not all be death and mayhem and murder. It could be affairs and things like that moving forward. Who knows? Ooh, that would be kind of (laughs) dicey. Affairs and Jane Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Oh, my. Well, we'll see. I enjoyed it. The book is blurbed as being a thrilling whodunit. I didn't think it was thrilling in that way. It wasn't like that page turner, but it was very enjoyable. And if you are into Jane Austen, I recommend you check it out. Again, that's The Murder of Mr. Wickham by Claudia Gray coming out May 3rd from Vintage. And thanks to NetGalley for the advanced reader copy on that. It's so funny because I think of it when you talked about it last time, too. I have this image of like the game of Clue, Hmm. you know, like where all these people are in the different rooms of the house and they're from the different books and all of that. And you're trying to solve the mystery. Yeah, she drops a lot of really good red herrings along the way. You can kind of see who has motive, Mm -hmm. and also means possibly to have done what happened. It also has that vibe of a bit of a locked room mystery because they are all in this house. They do go to town at one point, but the person in charge of the investigation pretty much tells them, don't leave town. (laughs) Maybe that's why I got that clue vibe. Yes. And, you know, the murder happens in the house at night and Throughout the investigation, you find out who was where and why and doing what. It has that vibe for sure. Did it happen with the candlestick? (laughs) You have to play Clue to get that. (laughs) My daughter loved that game growing up. (laughs) Well, I finished a book called Learning America, One Woman's Fight for Educational Justice for Refugee Children. This is by Luma Mufla. She has a really great TED Talk, and I will put the link in the show notes for you to watch it. I highly recommend it. It's like 14 minutes. So Luma is herself someone who was a refugee to the United States. She's a Muslim from Jordan. She gained asylum to the U.S. because she came here to go to school, and then she was able to seek asylum as a protected class because she's gay. And that is not something that you're allowed to be in Jordan as a Muslim. So it's been a difficult thing for her because her family completely disowned her as well. So she's someone who has her own experiences of coming to this country and having to make her way. She was in her 20s and living down south, and she happened upon a pickup game of soccer She was in Georgia, and there was a group of boys from Liberia, Afghanistan, and Sudan who were out. They didn't even have a real soccer ball. They had put something makeshift together. And she pulled up, and she was actually coaching soccer at the time, and pulled out a soccer ball, and they all went crazy. She ended up coaching them, becoming a coach to this group of boys. And what she learned as she was coaching them was that They were all having different life experiences based on their own trauma and their own history of how they came to be in this country, but also that they were having very difficult times in school, most of them. And a lot of that was because they didn't speak the language. So you can't just be thrown into school and try to be on grade level learning everything. A lot of them were actually graduating from high school and couldn't read or write. So she started tutoring kids and really becoming involved with their families. And eventually, she opened up a school. And it's called Fuji's Academy. She now has two schools. There's one in Atlanta and one in Columbus, Ohio. And this book is really about her experience of coming to be a principal of a school for refugees. What she really talks about is that you have to meet them where they are. 
You can't just expect them to get into a school system and forge ahead successfully, necessarily. Some kids do, but what she found is if she could develop an academy specifically for them, and they all play soccer, that's part of the drill, it's been very successful. One of the things that she said people talk about negatively, that's basically what she's doing is developing a segregated school. Mm. And she really pushes back on that and says what she's doing is creating a safe space for these kids to learn in a much different way than they were learning in the public schools. So I would be interested to get some educators to read the book and see what their feedback is. I think it's a very successful system that she's put into place. And I think what she's trying to do now is not, you know, go out and open academies in every city across America, but help other educators understand the process and how they are achieving success. And she recently was awarded a $10 million donation by Mackenzie Scott, which is big, huge news. She is the ex-wife of Jeff Bezos, and she's doing a lot in the world of philanthropy. So that was a big boon for Luma and her academy. That's fantastic. I mean, what great work to do, you know, because when you come to the country and you don't speak the language, just be thrown into school. I just can't imagine that situation. And the schools are not necessarily prepared. They don't have the resources to work with kids who might be really great at algebra as a teenager or whatever, but if they don't speak the language. Yeah. Yeah. And I know enough educators. I hope I didn't come across as making it sound like the schools were failing. The schools, I do believe, are doing the best they can. Mm -hmm. And it's a high bar to set to have them have a classroom of 30 kids and maybe three of the kids in their classroom can't speak English. That's a lot to ask of teachers to keep everybody on task and at grade level. So I think what Luma's doing here makes sense. And also the other thing she really gets to at the end is she's even had to reevaluate when she first set up the academy to her success was these kids go on to college. You know, they graduate, first of all, 100% graduation rate, 100% college entry. That was her goal when she started. And she's changing her tune a little because she's finding like, is the value of that college education that's going to cost them a lot of money worth it for their future? For some kids, yes. For other kids, maybe learning a trade is a much better thing to do. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that's a nationwide conversation that's starting to happen, too, is that college is not the end-all, be-all for everyone. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. So I really enjoyed this book. I thought it was well-written, a page-turner for me. And also reading it the week that the announcement of Mackenzie Scott's donation was pretty fun. And the book is out now. Thank you to Mariner Books for sending us an advanced copy, but the book is available now. Again, it's called Learning America, One Woman's Fight for Educational Justice for Refugee Children by Luma Mufla. Awesome. What great work. I look forward to her TED Talk. Yeah, and the TED Talk, if you want to just Google it yourself, but I will put it in the show notes, is titled, Don't Feel Sorry for Refugees, Believe in Them. Mm-hmm. I finished Hurricane Girl by Marcy Domansky. This book's out June 14th. I was very cagey when I talked about it last time. Marcy Domansky writes very short books, so I don't want to give anything away. What I will say is very similar to what I said before. A woman moves across the country from California to North Carolina, buys herself a beach house. The first week she owns it, it's taken out in a hurricane. She's sitting on the porch The news crew comes by to interview her. She runs into one of the cameramen later at a bar because she's homeless. She goes home with him. I'm going to tell you one more part, which is he knocks her over the head with a vase. The rest of the book, it's very shocking. It's not funny. The rest of the book is her dealing with the consequences of that trauma. And it kind of becomes a revenge story, which is surprising. But it takes her a little while to seek revenge. She goes back home to her mom's house. She runs into an old boyfriend from high school and she has to have brain surgery. So it's also all told in a way that it's kind of confusing because it's someone who suffered a head trauma. Oh, wow. Yeah. I just love her books. They're kind of weird and unusual and they take turns you don't expect. Mm -hmm. So highly recommend. Put it on your calendar. Pre-order it now. Ask your library to get it. Hurricane Girl, Marcy Dramansky. So, Chris, did you go on any Biblio adventures? 
I had one Biblio adventure and it was of the Zoom variety. And that was for our buddy Colleen's birthday read book discussion that she had for The Plague of Doves, a novel by Louise Erdrich that came out in 2008. And it was a really fun conversation. I admit I didn't finish the novel. It was actually a hard one to come across. I didn't find it at any of the used bookstores. Maybe it wasn't one of her more popular ones, but I enjoyed as much as I read of it and will eventually finish the rest of it. But good conversation. And did people for the most part enjoy it? Oh, yes, people did. And it was fun. There were some uh, friendly book cougar faces there as well. It's kind of a weird story in some ways. It deals with this murder that happened of a family in the 19th century, I believe, late 19th century, early 20th. This family in a homestead that are murdered. Indigenous people are accused and hanged for it. But it's about the families and how they're interacting over the decades then and the generations because they're all staying in this same area because part of it's on a reservation. Mm. So fascinating story. And it's part of a trilogy. I've only read one other book by her, uh, Tracks, but she's one of Colleen's favorite writers. So Colleen's revisiting a lot of her favorites. Yeah, she's a great writer. I love her work. Well, I took the gentleman caller on a biblio adventure. I'm about to get a big work project, so I wanted to have some unadulterated fun last weekend. <laughs> so we went to House of Books in Kent because nice. I knew he would like that bookstore. And we took a hike in Macedonia State Park. So it was really fun. That bookstore is so beautiful. I had bought a pen, a Japanese pen for the gentleman caller that I am um, using quite a bit. <laughs> That's the gentle way of saying I took it. <laughs> so he really likes it too. So we bought some more of those and we just had a really lovely time. That's awesome. That's such a cool bookstore. I signed up for their newsletter and it's a really nice newsletter. And they're fun to follow on social media too. Yeah. They're going to make you want to buy lots of books, which is their job. So we have an upcoming jaunt together. Yeah, this coming weekend, we're going to be going to the Savoy Bookstore and Cafe in Westerly, Rhode Island to see Andrea Wang, who is the author of Watercress, do story time. Yes, and then we're also going to meet with her friend, Debbie Machico Florence, who has a book that's coming out soon. It's called Sweet and Sour. Yeah, that's coming out July 26th from Scholastic. So it's kind of like a middle grade chapter book. Mm -hmm. And on the cover, they are sitting in front of Bank Square Books, bookstore in Mystic, Connecticut. That's where this novel is set. And you see a little statue rendering of the whale that they have in front of the bookstore. It's very cute. We'll put this on social media. Maybe you can do your image magic and we've got that picture of us in front of the whale at Mystic. (laughs) Maybe you can do it side by side. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that's this Sunday and we're going to be interviewing them as well. And that will be in a future author spotlight. Yes. So what about upcoming reads? Anything on your nightstand? Well, we're doing a buddy read with our mystery man, John Valeri, right? Yes, we are. We're going to be reading Death on the Nile by Agatha Christie. Yes, I maybe cheated is a strong word, but I did watch the movie. You guys are waiting to watch the movie. Talk no, to you read the book. John watched it oh, already. Good. And he, so the movie, it's the new Kenneth Branagh adaptation. Mm-hmm. And uh, he watched it already. So I'm the only one who hasn't watched it yet. I need to get on that. Oh, my guilt has been assuaged. Good. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to be talking about it on the next episode, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. With John. Mm-hmm. So that'll yep. be fun. That should be a lot of fun. He is one of those people who read all of Agatha Christie when he was a young guy. He just enjoys the series and revisiting them. And um, so. so this is a reread for him. Yes. And this will be while, my though. first Agatha Christie. Oh, really? Yeah. All right, cool. Yes, I'm excited. How yeah. about you? You've read Agatha Christie. I've read a couple. I've read um, Murder on the Orient Express several times. And The Body in the Library is another one. So I have read a couple, but not a whole lot. When I was a young person and wanting to try a mystery... She was recommended to me, but I don't know if I was just too immature. I don't know. She just didn't stick with me back then. Yeah. So Well, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. So if you want to read along with us or if you've already read Death on the Nile or you want to watch the new adaptation, 
and connect with us over it, we'd love to chat with you. We should do a buddy read thing on Goodreads for the book. Yeah, definitely. And we did also put a Maud Martha, Gwendolyn Brooks buddy read on Goodreads. So we'll put both of those up. We're going to get to that at some point too soon, hopefully. Yeah. So Maud Martha, that's Gwendolyn Brooks novel that she wrote. She's more known as a poet, but she did write this novel. And I believe it's getting to be a little bit harder to find. It's out of print right now, but there is a new edition coming out in May in the UK. I have to look into the US, but I would think that the exhibit on her at the Morgan is probably driving a lot of people to snap up some of those used copies that have been available online. Yeah. So maybe if you can find it and you want to do the read along with us, we would love to have you. So two buddy reads coming up. And then I also have a copy of Rachel Barenbaum's book, Atomic Anna, which is out now. Rachel was a guest on um, our video channel, YouTube, right? Mm -hmm. Back in the day for her book, A Bend in the Stars. This is her sophomore novel, and it's getting really good reviews. Yes. Yes. Congratulations on that one. Yeah. So the other book on my list, I have a copy of Oblivion, which is a short story collection from David Foster Wallace. This one came out in 2004. I've never read anything by him. And I thought short stories might be a good way to start. So we'll see. Yeah. I know everybody talks about Infinite Jest, which is like 8,000 pages. Yeah. I don't think that would be a good introduction for me. Yeah. When I was at House of Books, I saw a new book by David Foster Wallace posthumously. It's called Something to Do with Paying Attention. Hmm. And I believe it's a book of short stories that they found after he passed away. Something to think about as well, if you're a David Foster Wallace fan. Also, in the Out Now category, this is books we've talked about on the podcast in the past, prior to them coming out. There's a handful, because this week has been a huge week for the publishing industry. A lot of books have come out, so I'm just going to prattle them off quickly. The Wise Women by Gina Sorrell. Memphis by Tara M. Stringfellow, A Tiny Upward Shove by Melissa Chadburn, Take My Hand by Dolan Perkins Valdez, and Bomb Shelter, Love, Time, and Other Explosives by Mary Louise Philpott. Nice. Yeah, Yeah, it's, you know, ramping up spring. Soon all the summer lists will be coming out. So it's an exciting time in the publishing world. Pre-order, pre-order. Yeah, pre-order and, you know, let your library know about ordering books that you're really into. That's really nice, too, to just get books that you love in front of other readers. Yeah, and I usually tell them about both the book and the audiobook Mm -hmm. because I want it all. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we had the delightful pleasure of speaking with Amy Bloom about her new memoir, In Love. Yes, Amy Bloom's a local author to us. She has a national, international reputation, but she lives just down the road from us here in Connecticut. So it was great to connect with her to talk about this memoir. The subtitle is A Memoir of Love and Loss, and it is about her husband Brian's struggle with Alzheimer's from the early days of her noticing things and then a diagnosis and then eventually his and his life on his terms yes really yeah with dignity which is part of why the place that they ended up going is called dignitas right in switzerland and she weaves the story back and forth in their falling in love which is why it's called in love being in love their marriage and then the experience of having to prepare Brian to be um, allowed to utilize the services at Dignitas. Right. Amy's a beautiful writer. And one of the things I think she does so well with this book, I saw a, a famous actress once talk about a role that she took that was about a marriage. And they said, why did you take this role? And she said, well, what I think marriage is about is having someone who bears witness to your life. And as I was reading this book, it reminded me of that, because that's really what Amy does here is she bears witness to Brian's life and the end of his life and what a big person he was and how, you know, in love they were, but yet had to make this really difficult decision. Right. And he wanted her to write about this. He told her several times, more than several, that he wanted her to write about what they were going through, what they'd gone through. 
because it is important. I'm hoping that she's gotten mostly positive feedback from this book. I know it's a somewhat controversial idea and concept to some people. Brian felt very much that he had control over his life and his body and was a proponent of Planned Parenthood, you know, for that very reason. So I think it's very honorable that she wrote about it. And I think it's good information for us all to understand that there are choices. Yes. And the writing of this book, I think is just exquisite. As Emily said, she weaves the story of the Alzheimer's, their struggle with it, the diagnosis, the aftermath, and their love, and also issues of societal restrictions against ending one's life. But the writing of it, um, can I read a paragraph? Should I read? Okay, so this is kind of early on. Brian and Amy were married to other people when they met, and they really hit it off, and they knew it was dangerous. So they completely backed off and didn't see each other for a year. And then they did again, see each other. And Brian says to her, I'm not stupid. I know how this will end. You'll tell me we should not do this to the people we love. And I'll tell you, and we'll go back to our lives where we should be. And I will never get over this or we'll blow up our lives and be together. I just want to say this, he said, before we walk back to our cars I know who you could be with, someone rich, someone fancy, some guy your sister finds for you. But I know who you should be with. You should be with a guy who doesn't mind that you're smarter than he is, who doesn't mind that most of the time you'll be the main event. You need to be with a guy who supports how hard you work and who'll bring you a cup of coffee late at night. I don't know if I can be that guy, he said, tears in his eyes, but I'd like a shot. We married. (laughs) boom end of not only the paragraph but end of a chapter right i just love the way she handles that because you know how much drama and heartache was involved for them personally for their spouses for their families but all of that is just kind of said in that one statement we married and that took my breath away Mm -hmm. when i read that yeah It really did. The book is like that page after page. I've mentioned before, I'm not a rereader. I have read this cover to cover twice and listened to the audiobook, which she narrates beautifully. Yeah, the audiobook is fantastic. It's been on my car since I finished it. It's it's what's just playing. I highly recommend it. I mean, it's not a book that I would normally pick up, I don't think. And I'm so glad I did because it's a beautiful story and it's a painful story, but one that we need to talk about a lot more, especially as so many of us are aging. We're living longer and our bodies are holding out a hell of a lot longer than our minds are quite often. So we hope you enjoy our interview with Amy. We're really grateful to have been able to speak with her. Great. In Love is a book about Amy falling in love with her husband, Brian their life together, and how it changes when he is diagnosed with Alzheimer's. His wish to end his life on his terms leads them on a path to Switzerland and the organization Dignitas, the only option available to honor Brian's wishes. While reading this memoir, Chris and I both fell in love with you and Brian. We are so sorry for your loss. Thank you for sharing and for joining us today. Glad to be here. Well, Amy, one of the first questions we have about this memoir is the book is dedicated to Brian. And then on one of the first pages, there's a quote from him saying, please write about this. And we were wondering if you would talk a little bit about what was the process of tackling writing about this experience so soon after it happened? Did you want to write this? Did you want to write it when you did write it? Would you have preferred to wait I don't think I would have preferred to have waited. No, Brian was really clear that he wanted me to write about this, that he thought it was an important subject. He had always felt it was an important subject, even before it had to do with him. He was very big on autonomy and human rights and self-determination, and he felt this was one of those issues, that it was not any different from any other choice that human beings should be allowed to make about their quality and about their existence. He had very strong feelings about my writing the book. I was prepared to do it. I mean, I'm a writer. This is sort of what I do. 
I wouldn't say that I wanted to write it then or that I would want to write it now. I find writing very hard work, so I never want to write not a novel, not an essay, not a short story. I occasionally want to write a children's book, and then I do, and that's usually delightful. But the rest of the time, I'm just thinking of ways to avoid writing. And so with this book, I had notes the way one does when you are a caregiver to somebody with a chronic illness. B12 supplements, what time is this appointment? What time is that appointment? How will we get him there? Oh, you know, I need to drive him, so I need to make sure my schedule is clear. You know, the kinds of notes that one has, and I had a lot of those. And then unexpectedly, but very happily, the pandemic came upon us, and with it for me, my daughter, her wife, and their baby had to come up from Brooklyn because they suddenly had two full-time jobs working from home and no childcare. So they came up and in the mornings I would take care of Zora. And then in the afternoons, I would run to my office, sort of look at my computer and think, oh, well, I might as well. Here I am. And it turns out that you can type and cry at the same time. And I was, I think, fueled by both the loss and also both the very positive feelings of support from friends and family, and also some really negative feelings about the way in which this had been such a frustrating and often frightening process. So all of that sort of drove me toward the writing, uh, probably with more energy than I would have normally. Yeah, and I, I really appreciated, you know, as a local, how deeply you set this memoir in the area with landmarks and places you both went. Was that intentional or did, did that just happen? I, I know you teach writing, so I was curious about how much was intentional and how much the structure just came. There may be people for whom the structure just comes as writers. I am not one of them. The goal is to make it look effortless and natural and, oh, it just happened like that, but that's not actually the way it goes. And um, the setting mattered to me partially because... I've been in Connecticut a long time, but I'm not from Connecticut. And so there are aspects of it that still delight me or surprise me occasionally that appall me. But, you know, mostly um, I did want to sort of set the stage and describe our life. And our life was certainly very much in our neighborhood. As we get to know your relationship with Brian, it becomes evident that you know, you're in your own, um, I don't think struggle is the right word, but you're coming to terms is probably the, the right word with how your relationship is changing and how your interactions are changing. The everyday banal sort of interactions that a husband and a wife have. And if it's okay with you, I just wanted to read a little little piece about in the, in the chapter Birdseed. Brian's in charge of all things avian. And I've affronted him by telling him that he hasn't taken care of the birds. I try hard not to say things like this, but every once in a while, my need to prove a point, such a basic and unattractive need, rises up and I meet it by telling him things that he doesn't need to hear. I'm ashamed of myself, but then Brian turns on me and says that he can't understand why he's being grilled about birdseed. He gets a little loud and very irritable, and he leaves abruptly to go fishing, and I'm glad, not only because he's gone, but since he yelled at me quite unfairly. You could say that I was pressing the point about the unfed birds, but I wasn't grilling him. I don't feel ashamed anymore. How did you find that your behavior had to change as his Alzheimer's progressed? Well, I think I am a fairly patient person in my human interactions. I am not a patient person at the red light. I am not from Connecticut. And so the people who sit at the red light for 10, 15, 20 seconds doing whatever it is they're doing, thinking about their journey, contemplating their existence, it is hard for me not to tap my horn after about 15 seconds. But with human beings, I try to be patient. And you know, with Brian, it was never really an issue. I mean, I think we both knew who the other person was and what we were getting into. And so impatience didn't really come into it. But with his Alzheimer's symptoms developing, I certainly had to 
find other approaches. And that was more challenging before the diagnosis than afterwards. Because once you have the diagnosis, it seems to me, you, you reset, you reboot the whole system of communication. But prior to that, you know, I was sort of feeling my way along, but certainly noticing that I had to approach things differently so that he would be able to respond comfortably and in a positive way because there were a lot of things, as often happens with people with Alzheimer's, in which he found things disturbing and frustrating and therefore a little frightening. And I had to make some guesses as to what might be helpful there. Yeah, Just the dementia and Alzheimer's in general, as middle-aged folks, as we all are here, you know, it's, it's hard to tell sometimes what is just regular middle-aged memory changes versus actual dementia setting in. Well, really, as it turns out, they are quite different. <laughs> and I know all of us go, oh, my God, where are the keys? Do I have Alzheimer's? But that's not really how it works. And so, you know, it isn't the moment of going, why am I in this room? It's not that. It's the whole sense of connectedness to your world and understanding things that you did not understand, that you understood before and not understanding them now. It's really that. One of Brian's great difficulties was he, he was an architect and he had gotten a job entirely on the strength of his resume and his personality. And when he got to the office, he could not master the printer every week. He could not master the printer, and it went on for months. And it was frustrating to him, but he couldn't really quite identify the problem. He just would come home and report that the administrative assistant in the office seemed very annoyed with him. He wasn't sure why. She didn't seem to want to help him. And it was striking to me that it, he never said, I don't understand how to use the printer. He just said, you know, I've been asking her for help. And, you know, she was quite curt with me and um, things like that. So it's not really, oh, why did I walk into this room? It's more like, what is this object? How does it work? And I cannot master it, even though I used to use it all the time. And that's really much more what Alzheimer's is like. Yeah. And you talk about the clock, the test, um, withdrawing a clock or understanding a clock. And Thank you for explaining the differences. And we were both curious a bit about the documents that you included in the book. Um, you have the test in the book and uh, Brian's dental records. And one of the questions we had is why include those? And then a follow-up question is why no photographs of, of you and or Brian in the memoir itself? Well, I didn't think of it as a photo album, you know. I thought of it as a piece of prose. And um, also, I have to say, I, I probably didn't have any impulse to invite strangers to look through my photo album in some important way. I am a writer, and I, I want to serve this book. And um, part of that is, is publicity and opportunities like this with podcast. But I'm, in fact, a fairly private person. And that was, it didn't even occur to me to put in photographs. Um, and I put in the tests and some of the other things because I thought they were interesting documents. One person wrote to me, I have gotten a ton of email, all of it, really all of it, stories of people's own experiences, whether a parent with dementia or a spouse with dementia or helping a spouse or a parent end their life, but just hundreds and hundreds, all very positive. One person did say, well, don't you think if you put in the test and somebody could study the test and then they could pass them and then you know that they have dementia? And I'm like, I wish that that were true. I wish that if you could study for the test, you would remember how to take the test. But if you have dementia, that's not very likely. I think one of the things that makes dementia such a difficult, all the dementing diseases so difficult is the way they sort of eat away from the inside. And it's so hard for those of us standing outside. I and mean, they, they look the same, you know, except maybe the look in their eyes. But the wish to normalize it, the wish to keep them with us is so strong. Speaking of one's own experiences, um, my, my father did not 
die from Alzheimer's, but he had a terminal cancer diagnosis and was in hospice. And one morning at about five in the morning, my phone rang and I was informed that he had decided that today was the day he wanted to die. And I got in my car to drive to hospice thinking, you know, how do I share with him that, you know, that's actually not an option. I understand that he's ready and I honor that. But where we live, that's not an option at the time I was living in Ohio. And, you know, we've made great strides in this country with palliative care. We really have and keeping people comfortable, but not so much with someone choosing that it's their time to go. So can you just explain a little bit about the laws in the United States and why it was that you and Brian went to Dignitas in Switzerland? Sure. Um, The laws in the United States in what we call the right to die states, of which there are nine, are really eye of the needle laws. The language is exactly the same in all of them. And you can see that the intention is to make sure that very, very few people take advantage of the law. The, the, the law is not designed to alleviate suffering. It is, they are designed to make sure very few people can take advantage of them. So um, first you have to become a resident of that state. So you leave Connecticut or Ohio and you move somewhere else and become a resident, which is also not instantaneous. Um, then you have to find two doctors to attest to the fact that you have a terminal disease and will be dead in six months. Not a year, not 18 months. You'll be dead in six months. Then you have to find doctors who will interview you, usually twice in person. And once you have to turn in a written essay. And again, I want to say, imagine being terminally ill and having to write an essay about your illness and your wish to die. And then after those three interviews, and in many cases, a mandatory 15-day waiting period, although some states now waive that, they will arrange for you, you, not an assistant, you to be able to pick up your medication, a a lethal dose um, at the pharmacy, and then you, on your own, without assistance, will take that lethal dose and pass away. This is not something that is designed to be of much help to most people, and Needless to say, it is of absolutely no help at all to people with Parkinson's, to people with ALS, to people with dementing diseases, because although they are all terminal diseases, they are not necessarily, you know, within the, within six months terminal diseases. So your capacity to say yes or no about the end of your life is unlikely to be present in the last six months of your life, unless you are blessed with, blessed seems not quite the right word, but a particular kind of terminal illness that in no way affects your cognitive function, of which there are not that many. Yeah, you know, I've, I've had loved ones um, die from cancer and different types of dementia, and the window, it's kind of almost a pointless thing for these laws Um they're more like wishful thinking or see, we have this, as you write in the book, it's almost as meaningful as saying, you know, we have the right to food and housing. Just because it's there doesn't mean you're going to get it. And even the struggle with Dignitas, what you had to go through, we're just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the experience of approaching Dignitas. I think that Dignitas did a great job and they did what they said they were going to do. And part of their job, as they understand it, is to be helpful and accompanied suicide. But they are not in the business of helping somebody, you know, who has decided to end their life, you know, in reasonably good health, but 40 years old and having a very difficult time of managing their depression. That is not how they understand their mission. And so for us, the stumbling block was not that Brian did have a history of clinical depression. It was the fact that he did not, but his neurologist had been careless. And without being unkind, I would say lazy and wrote that he was getting his MRI because of clinical depression. And when I called her and said, he's never been clinically depressed. There's nothing in his medical 
records that suggest clinical depression. She was like, oh, it's no big deal. So I had to put in something for why he needed his MRI. So I just wrote that down. I'm like, well, I see that it was not a big deal to you, but it was a big deal to us. And she was not interested in changing it. And she wanted not to admit that she had made an error and had been, in fact, careless. And that led to a whole series of unexpected consequences. Although, you know, in the end, obviously, we were able to make the journey and we got the support and the medical help that we needed. Yeah, and that was in large part to you really shepherding the process. The memoir also speaks to the importance of having someone in the room with you when you're talking to a doctor and following up and making the difficult phone calls and then some saviors like Wayne who came into your life at a really important time. Yeah, I am just always grateful about that. He was a wonderful therapist. He was actually a great teacher. You know, I might have thought that I was a little too old to learn a lot about doing therapy, but turns out I was mistaken and it was a great opportunity to get better at that. No, we were very, very lucky in Wayne. And I think it seemed to me, I suppose, that I didn't have to put aside my anger about the people who didn't help us, but I could focus on the people who did. Yeah, I guess that's a gift, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I got angry reading this. Um, just, you, you know, with some of the, the overall situation, of course, but then the medical community's response to it and the, the lack of help and the outright, as you kind of said, laziness and misdiagnosis happens all the time, I know, with this. But I think one of the big things is just Brian's personality in this memoir and how he comes through. And I'm sad I never had the opportunity to meet him because he sounds like a great guy. Well, his philosophy, right? One of the things is if there's going to be a fight, throw the first punch. And I love that. And it just really informed the overall experience of what you shared with us. And it's just beautiful. Oh, I'm glad. I mean, I think that that comes through all over. I mean, that was his philosophy and facing Alzheimer's didn't alter that. It was like, oh, I see how this is. And as he said to me, I'm going to have to leave you either way. I want to leave you the way, the way I am as the person I am and not as somebody who you are relieved to see leave this world. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and there's the very poignant scene where you go to visit an old therapist, Rachel, and it really gives insight into the story because she is suffering from Alzheimer's. Her disease is more progressed, and she's like got her suitcase packed, and she's ready to go with you and Brian, and sadly, that's not an option for her. You know, the choice that you really have about shaping the end of your life when you have a dementing disease is pretty straightforward and pretty harsh, which is that you will either leave before you want to and before you might necessarily have to, or you will not be able to leave at all. Right, right. So the last question we have for you is, you know, you've written this memoir. It really is both sharing your love life with you and Brian and also what happens when he is diagnosed with this disease. But in some ways, it's also informing what people's choices are. And I'm wondering if now that you've written the memoir, if it's kind of a chapter in your life that you are setting aside as much as one can do, or if you feel any impulse to get involved in the conversation about end-of-life options in the United States. Well, it's certainly my hope that the book will contribute to the conversation. I think one of the things I have imagined is that maybe it's possible for somebody to hand the book to somebody else and say, oh, this is really interesting. Maybe we should talk about this. You know, oh, this is about this couple and how they had to plan. You know, maybe we should plan or at least talk about it or think about it or make advanced directives, which are unfortunately, again, not that helpful with Alzheimer's, um, but maybe our family should sit down and talk about this. Because although the planning can be limited, the limited planning is much better than no planning. And difficult conversations, I think, are better than no conversations. I mean, I had to chase my own parents around the house. It was extraordinary. These are, you know, these are not fast-moving people. And nevertheless, <laughs> you know, from the kitchen to the living room to the porch, going, you know, sort of waving a document saying, we need to talk about this. And they're like, sure, later, 
have a cup of tea, you know, we'll get to it. Oh, look, there's that show on TV. I spent three days chasing my parents down just to get them to do a living will. And so I know it is really difficult, but my hope was that sometimes humanizing a story and making it real, excuse me, with real people and real consequences can be helpful to people in thinking about a big abstract issue, which is very hard to contemplate. So that was that was part of my wish. I am very supportive of the legislation that people are trying to pass to have somewhat broader right to dialogues. I'm very supportive of the organizations that wish to change policies as they have successfully over the last 20 years of palliative care. I don't see myself as sort of out on the stump giving speeches and rallying the troops, but I'm always going to be very supportive of people who are doing that because I think it's important work. Absolutely. The right, mm-hmm. the right to choice, what you do with your body, it's a big issue in this country, obviously, that kind of goes without saying. And this is a, another avenue that we have to talk about, I think, as the population is aging. And it's a lot of people. Yeah. You combine the number of people who have Alzheimer's and the number of people who are caring for people with Alzheimer's. These are big, big numbers. We have really not been prepared. I mean, honestly, if you look at an Alzheimer's website, you see that there's sort of a lot of positive attitude, which I appreciate. And then you get to the treatment part, and it's basically hopefulness. And eat blueberries. Eat blueberries, get enough sleep, get this app on your phone, which, by the way, is a really good idea. So you can track the other person and not lose them. Mm, yeah, yeah. For all that I say, there's not that much that's useful on the Alzheimer's websites. That was very useful. Yeah, yeah. We will definitely put a link in the show notes to that website for people's reference. Yeah, yeah. So, Amy, thank you so much for writing this memoir. We are definitely going to recommend it and get it into a lot of people's hands because I think it is a a must read. Great. I'm so glad. And I thought I would just leave us with just a few words from Maya Angelou. Sure. This is something that I love. First best is falling in love. Second best is being in love. Least best is falling out of love. But any of it is better than never having been in love. Maya Angelou. A hundred percent. Yeah. So glad that you and Brian had some time together and Thank you for sharing your story with us. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate the conversation. Yeah, as do we. Thank you, Amy. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, come chat with us on social media. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, we would love to have you join our community. All of the books that we talked about in this episode are listed in the show notes which you can find at bookcougars.com. Each book will link to our bookshop.org page where your purchase will help support not only the book cougars, but also independent bookstores everywhere. And if you're an audiobook listener, we do have a special offer from libro.fm. You can find all of this information on our website. Again, that's bookcougars.com. Thanks, everybody. This episode is edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.